The Pitcher of Water. Inspector Morisot seemed perplexed. He questioned Renine with a glance. Renine said, "Since you want specific details, we will get them from Madame Aubrier herself. She's on the telephone. Let's go downstairs. We shall know all about it in a minute." Dutroy shrugged his shoulders. "As you please, but what a waste of time!" He seemed greatly irritated. His long wait at the window under a blazing sun had thrown him into a sweat. He went to his bedroom and returned with a pitcher of water, from which he took a few sips. Afterwards, placing the pitcher on the window sill, "Come along," he said. Prince Renine chuckled. <laughs> "You seem to be in a hurry to leave the place." "I'm in a hurry to show you up," retorted Dutroy, slamming the door. They went downstairs to the private room containing the telephone. The room was empty. Renine asked Gaston Dutroy for the Aubrieux's number, took down the instrument, and was put through. The maid who came to the telephone answered that Madame Aubrieux had fainted, giving way to despair, and that she was now asleep. "Fetch her mother, please." Prince Renine speaking. It's urgent. He handed the second receiver to Morisot. For that matter, the voices were so distinct that Dutroy and Hortense were able to hear every word exchanged. "Is that you, Madame?" "Yes, Prince Renine, I believe." Prince Renine. "Oh, sir, what news have you for me? Is there any hope?" asks the old lady in a tone of entreaty. "The inquiry is proceeding very satisfactorily," said Renine, "and you may hope for the best. For the moment, I want you to give me some very important particulars. On the day of the murder, did Gaston Dutroy come to your house?" "Yes, he came to fetch my daughter and myself after lunch." "Did he know at the time that Monsieur Guillaume had sixty thousand francs at his place?" Yes, I told him, and that Jack Aubrieux was not feeling very well and was proposing not to take his usual cycle ride, but to stay at home and sleep. Yes, you are sure, absolutely certain. And you all three went to the cinema together. Yes, and you were all sitting together. Oh no, there was no room. He took a seat farther away. A seat where you could see him? No, but he came to you during the interval. No, we did not see him until we were going out. There is no doubt of that, none at all. Very well, Madame. I will tell you the rest of my efforts in an hour's time. But above all, don't wake up Madame Aubrieux. And suppose she wakes up of her own accord, reassure her and give her confidence. Everything is going well, very well indeed. He hung up the receiver and turned to Dutroy, laughing. Aha, my boy, things are beginning to look clearer. What do you say? It was difficult to tell what these words meant or what conclusions Renine had drawn from his conversation. The silence was painful and oppressive. Monsieur Chief Inspector, you have some of your men outside, haven't you? Two detective sergeants. It's important that they should be there. Please also ask the manager not to disturb us on any account. And when Morisot returned, Renine closed the door, took his stand in front of Dutroy, and speaking in a good-humored but emphatic tone, said. It amounts to this, young man, that the ladies saw nothing of you between three and five o'clock on that Sunday. That's rather a curious detail. A perfectly natural detail, Dutroy retorted, and one moreover which proves nothing at all. It proves, young man, that you had a good two hours at your disposal. Obviously, two hours which I spent at the cinema, or somewhere else. Dutroy looked at him. Somewhere else? Yes. As you were free, you had plenty of time to go anywhere you liked—to Sorens, for example. Oh," said the young man, jesting in his turn. 
Sirens is a long way off. It's quite close. Hadn't you your friend Jacques Aubriot's motorcycle? A fresh pause followed these words. Dutroy had knit his brows as though he were trying to understand. At last he was heard to whisper, So this is what he was trying to lead up to. The brute. Renin brought down his hand on Dutroy's shoulder. No more talk. Facts. Gaston Dutroy, you are the only person who on that day knew two essential things. First, that cousin Guillaume had 60,000 francs in his house. Secondly, that Jacques Aubrieu was not going out. You at once saw your chance. The motorcycle was available. You slipped out during the performance. You went to Surrend. You killed Cousin Guillaume. You took the 60 banknotes and left them at your rooms. And at five o'clock, you went back to fetch the ladies. Dutroit had listened with an expression at once mocking and flurried, casting an occasional glance at Inspector Morisot as though to enlist him as a witness. The man's mad, it seemed to say. It's no use being angry with him. When Renin had finished, he began to laugh. Very funny. A capital joke. So it was I whom the neighbors saw going and returning on the motorcycle. It was you disguised in Jacques Aubrieu's clothes. And it was my fingerprints that were found on the bottle in Monsieur Guillaume's pantry? The bottle had been opened by Jacques Aubrieu at lunch in his own house, and it was you who took it with you to serve as evidence. Funnier and funnier, cried Dutroit, who had the air of being frankly amused. Then I contrived the whole affair so that Jacques Aubrieu might be accused of the crime. It was the safest means of not being accused yourself. Yes, but Jacques is a friend whom I have known from childhood. You are in love with his wife. The young man gave a sudden, infuriated start. You dare? What? You dare make such an infamous suggestion? I have proof of it. That's a lie. I have always respected Madeleine Aubrieu and revered her. Apparently, but you're in love with her. You desire her. Don't contradict me. I have abundant proof of it. That's a lie, I tell you. You have only known me a few hours. Come, come. I've been quietly watching you for days, waiting for the moment to pounce upon you. He took the young man by the shoulders and shook him. Come, Dutroit, confess. I have all the proofs in my hand. I have witnesses whom we shall meet presently at the criminal investigation department. Confess, can't you? In spite of everything, you're tortured by remorse. Remember your dismay at the restaurant when you had seen the newspaper. What? Jacques Aubriot condemned to die? That's more than you bargained for. Penal servitude would have suited your book. But the scaffold? Jacques Aubriot executed tomorrow, an innocent man. Confess, won't you? Confess to save your own skin. Own up. Bending over the other, he was trying with all his might to extort a confession from him. But Dutroit drew himself up and coldly, with a sort of scorn in his voice, said, Sir, you are a madman. Not a word that you have said has any sense in it. All your accusations are false. What about the banknotes? Did you find them at my place as you said you would? Renin, exasperated, clenched his fist in his face. Oh, you swine, I'll dish you yet, I swear I will. He drew the inspector aside. Well, what do you say? An arrogant rogue, isn't he? The inspector nodded his head. It may be, but all the same, so far there's no real evidence. Wait, Monsieur Morisot, said Renin. Wait until we've had our interview with Monsieur Dudouis, for we shall see Monsieur Dudouis at the prefecture, shall we not? Yes, he will be there at three o'clock. Well, you'll be convinced, Monsieur Inspector. I tell you here and now that you will be convinced. Renin was chuckling like a man who feels certain of the course of events. Hortense, who was standing near him and was able to speak to him without being heard by the others, asked in a low voice, You've got him, haven't you? He nodded his head in assent. Got him? I should think I have. 
All the same, I am no farther forward than I was at the beginning. But this is awful, and your proofs? Not the shadow of a proof. I was hoping to trip him up, but he's kept his feet, the rascal. Still, you're certain it's he? It can't be anyone else. I had an intuition at the very outset, and I've not taken my eyes off him since. I have seen his anxiety increasing as my investigations seem to center on him and concern him more closely. Now I know. And he's in love with Madame Aubria? In logic, he's bound to be. But so far, we have only hypothetical suppositions, or rather, certainties which are personal to myself. We shall never intercept the guillotine with those. Ah, if we could only find the banknotes. Given the banknotes, Monsieur Dudouis would act. Without them, he will laugh in my face. What then? murmured Hortense in anguished accents. He did not reply. He walked up and down the room, assuming an air of gaiety and rubbing his hands. All was going so well. It was really a treat to take up a case which, so to speak, worked itself out automatically. Suppose we went on to the prefecture, Monsieur Morisot. The chief must be there by now. And having gone so far, we may as well finish. Will Monsieur Dutroy come with us? Why not? said Monsieur Dutroy arrogantly. But just as Renine was opening the door, there was a noise in the passage, and the manager ran up, waving his arms. Is Monsieur Dutroy still here? Monsieur Dutroy, your flat is on fire. A man outside told us. He saw it from the square. The young man's eyes lit up. For perhaps half a second, his mouth was twisted by a smile, which Renine noticed. Oh, you ruffian, he cried. You've given yourself away, my beauty. It was you who set fire to the place upstairs, and now the notes are burning. He blocked his exit. Let me pass, shouted Dutroy. There's a fire, and no one can get in, because no one else has a key. Here it is. Let me pass, damn it. Renine snatched the key from his hand, and, holding him by the collar of his coat, Don't you move, my fine fellow. The game's up. Monsieur Morisot, will you give orders to the sergeant not to let him out of his sight and to blow out his brains if he tries to get away? Sergeant, we rely on you. Put a bullet into him if necessary. He hurried up the stairs, followed by Hortense and the chief inspector, who was protesting rather peevishly. But say, look here, it wasn't he who set the place on fire. How do you make out that he set it on fire, being that he never left us? Why, he set it on fire beforehand, to be sure. How, I ask you, how? How do I know? But a fire doesn't break out like that for no reason at all, at the very moment when a man wants to burn compromising papers. They heard a commotion upstairs. It was the waiters of the restaurant trying to burst the door open. An acrid smell filled the well of the staircase. Renine reached the top floor. By your leave, friends, I have the key. He inserted it in the lock and opened the door. He was met by a gust of smoke so dense that one might well have supposed the whole floor to be ablaze. Renine at once saw that the fire had gone out of its own accord, for lack of fuel, and that there were no more flames. Monsieur Morisot, you won't let anyone come in with us, will you? An intruder might spoil everything. Bolt the door, that will be best. He stepped into the front room, where the fire had obviously had its chief center. The furniture, the walls, and the ceiling, though blackened by the smoke, had not been touched. As a matter of fact, the fire was confined to a blaze of papers which was still burning in the middle of the room, in front of the window. Renine struck his forehead. What a fool I am! What an unspeakable ass! Why? asked the inspector. The hat box, of course! The cardboard hat box which was standing on the table! That's where he hid the notes! They were there all through our search. Impossible. Why, yes, we always overlook that particular hiding place, the one just under our eyes, within reach of our hands. 
How could one imagine that a thief would leave 60,000 francs in an open cardboard box in which he places his hat when he comes in with an absent-minded air? That's just the one place we didn't look in. Well played, Monsieur Dutroy. The inspector, who remained incredulous, repeated, No, no, impossible. We were here with him, and he could not have started the fire himself. Everything was prepared beforehand on the supposition that there might be an alarm. The hat box, the tissue paper, the banknotes, they must all have been steeped in some inflammable liquid. He must have thrown a match, a chemical preparation or what not, into it as we were leaving. But we should have seen him hang it all. And then, is it credible that a man who has committed murder for the sake of 60,000 francs should do away with the money in this way? If the hiding place was such a good one, and it was because we never discovered it, why this useless destruction? He got frightened, Monsieur Morisot. Remember that his head is at stake and that he knows it. Anything rather than the guillotine. And they, the banknotes, were the only proof which we had against him. How could he have left them where they were? Morisot was flabbergasted. What? The only proof? Why, obviously. But your witnesses? Your evidence? All that you were going to tell the chief? Mere bluff. Well, upon my word, growled the bewildered inspector, you're a cool customer. Would you have taken action without my bluff? No. Then what more do you want? Renine stooped to stir the ashes, but there was nothing left, not even those remnants of stiff paper which still retain their shape. Nothing, he said. It's queer all the same. How the deuce did he manage to set the thing alight? He stood up, looking attentively about him. Hortense had a feeling that he was making a supreme effort, and that, after this last struggle in the dark, he would either have devised his plan of victory or admit that he was beaten. Faltering with anxiety, she asked, It's all up, isn't it? No, no, he said thoughtfully. It's not all up. It was a few seconds ago, but now there is a gleam of light, and one that gives me hope. God grant your hope be justified. We must go slowly, he said. It is only an attempt, but a fine, a very fine attempt, and it may succeed. He was silent for a moment. Then, with an amused smile and a click of the tongue, he said, An infernally clever fellow, that Dutroy. His trick of burning the notes, what a fertile imagination, and what coolness. A pretty dance, the beggar has led me. He's a master. He fetched a broom from the kitchen and swept a part of the ashes into the next room, returning with a hat box of the same size and appearance as the one which had been burnt. After crumpling the tissue paper with which it was filled, he placed the hat box on the little table and set fire to it with a match. It burst into flames, which he extinguished when they had consumed half the cardboard and nearly all the paper. Then he took from an inner pocket of his waistcoat a bundle of banknotes and selected six, which he burnt almost completely, arranging the remains and hiding the rest of the notes at the bottom of the box, among the ashes and the blackened bits of paper. Monsieur Morisot, he said when he had done, I am asking for your assistance for the last time. Go and fetch Dutroy. Tell him just this. You are unmasked. The notes did not catch fire. Come with me. And bring him up here. Despite his hesitation and his fear of exceeding his instructions from the head of the detective service, the chief inspector was powerless to throw off the ascendancy which Renine had acquired over him. He left the room. Renine turned to Hortense. Do you understand my plan of battle? Yes, she said, but it's a dangerous experiment. Do you think that Dutroit will fall into the trap? Everything depends on the state of his nerves and the degree of demoralization to which he is reduced. A surprise attack may very well do for him. Nevertheless, suppose he recognizes by some sign that the box has been changed. 
Oh, of course he has a few chances in his favor. The fellow is much more cunning than I thought, and quite capable of wriggling out of the trap. On the other hand, however, how uneasy he must be, how the blood must be buzzing in his ears and obscuring his sight. No, I don't think that he will avoid the trap. He will give in. He will give in. They exchanged no more words. Renine did not move. Hortense was stirred to the very depths of her being. The life of an innocent man hung trembling in the balance. An error of judgment, a little bad luck, and twelve hours later Jacques Aubrio would be put to death. And together with a horrible anguish, she experienced, in spite of it all, a feeling of eager curiosity. What was Prince Renine going to do? What would be the outcome of the experiment on which he was venturing? What resistance would Gaston Dutroit offer? She lived through one of those minutes of superhuman tension in which life becomes intensified until it reaches its utmost value. They heard footsteps on the stairs, the footsteps of men in a hurry. The sound drew nearer. They were reaching the top floor. Hortense looked at her companion. He had stood up and was listening, his features already transfigured by action. The footsteps were now echoing in the passage. Then, suddenly, he ran to the door and cried, Quick, let's make an end of it. Two or three detectives and a couple of waiters entered. He caught hold of Dutroit in the midst of the detectives and pulled him by the arm, gaily exclaiming, Well done, old man. That trick of yours with the table and the pitcher of water was really splendid. A masterpiece, on my word. Only it didn't come off. What do you mean? What's the matter? mumbled Gaston Dutroit, staggering. Just what I say, the fire burned only half the tissue paper in the hat box, and though some of the banknotes were destroyed, like the tissue paper, the others are here, at the bottom. You understand? The long-sought notes, the great proof of the murder, they're there, where you hid them. As chance would have it, they've escaped burning. Here, look, there are the numbers, you can check them. Oh, you're done for, you're done for, my beauty. The young man drew himself up stiffly. His eyelids quivered. He did not accept Renine's invitation to look. He examined neither the hat box nor the banknotes. From the first moment, without taking the time to reflect and before his instincts could warn him, he believed what he was told and collapsed heavily into a chair, weeping. The surprise attack, to use Renine's expression, had succeeded. On seeing all his plans baffled and the enemy master of his secrets, the wretched man had neither the strength nor the perspicacity necessary to defend himself. He threw in the towel. Renine gave him no time to breathe. Capital! You're saving your head, and that's all, my good youth. Write down your confession and get it off your chest. Here's a fountain pen. Luck has been against you, I admit. It was devilishly well thought out, your trick of the last moment. You had the banknotes, which were in your way, and which you wanted to destroy. Nothing simpler. You take a big, round-bellied water pitcher and stand it on the windowsill. It acts as a burning glass, concentrating the rays of the sun on the cardboard and tissue paper, all nicely prepared. Ten minutes later, it bursts into flames. A splendid idea. And, like all great discoveries, it came quite by chance. Hmm? It reminds one of Newton's apple. One day, the sun passing through the water in that pitcher must have set fire to a scrap of cotton or the head of a match, and, as you had the sun at your disposal just now, you said to yourself, now's the time, and stood the pitcher in the right position. My congratulations, Gaston. Look, here's a sheet of paper. Write down, it was I who murdered Monsieur Guillaume. Right, I tell you. Leaning over the young man, with all his implacable force of will, he compelled him to write, guiding his hand and dictating the sentences. Dutroit, exhausted, at the end of his strength, wrote as he was told. 
Here's the confession, Monsieur Chief Inspector, said Renine. You will be good enough to take it to Monsieur Dudley. These gentlemen, turning to the waiters from the restaurant, will, I am sure, consent to serve as witnesses. And seeing that Dutroy, overwhelmed by what had happened, did not move, he gave him a shake. Hey, you, look alive. Now that you've been fool enough to confess, make an end of the job, my gentle idiot. The other watched him, standing in front of him. Obviously, Renine continued, you're only a simpleton. The hat box was fairly burnt to ashes, so were the notes. That hat box, my dear fellow, is a different one, and those notes belong to me. I even burnt six of them to make you swallow the stunt, and you couldn't make out what had happened. What an owl you must be, to furnish me with evidence at the last moment when I hadn't a single proof of my own. And such evidence, a written confession, written before witnesses. Look here, my man, if they do cut off your head, as I sincerely hope they will, upon my word you'll have jolly well deserved it. Goodbye, Detroit. Downstairs in the street, Renine asked Hortense Daniel to take the car, go to Madeleine Aubrieux, and tell her what had happened. And you? asked Hortense. I have a lot to do. Urgent appointments. And you deny yourself the pleasure of bringing the good news? It's one of the pleasures that pall upon one. The only pleasure that never flags is that of the fight itself. Afterwards, things cease to be interesting. She took his hand and for a moment held it in both her own. She would have liked to express all her admiration to that strange man, who seemed to do good as a sort of game, and who did it with something like genius. But she was unable to speak. All these rapid incidents had upset her. Emotion constricted her throat and brought the tears to her eyes. Renine bowed his head, saying, Thank you. I have my reward.